today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, let's talk about uh, the wildfires burning across Canada. You know, obviously, we have been watching what is happening in uh, British Columbia uh, for the last few weeks and such. But uh, interesting, I noticed over the weekend, uh, and I said to my wife, do you smell smoke? And, uh, no, I, I don't smell it. I don't, and, and I don't know. Maybe it's because I spent some time out west, but I could definitely tell the, the, you know, uh, and, and smell the scent of forest fires in the air. And of course, over the course of the last couple of days, uh, it has become, uh, everybody's become aware of this, the, the, uh, the sunset that we see at night. And of course, uh, the smell of fires burning. These are in northwestern Ontario. Uh, a lot of that has dissipated today with the cold front that has uh, come through but the last couple of days you could certainly uh, have that tinge in the air from those fire forest fires in northwestern Ontario you can imagine what it must be like in places like British Columbia we were just talking to uh, Shelby Tom video journalist with uh, Global News out in the Okanagan Valley and obviously painting uh, a very different picture for them out there Uh, as we talk more and more about this uh, and and I'm not sure why all of a sudden we're doing this now uh, we always talk about what caused it whether it was lightning climate change this that or the other but we rarely talk about what we can do uh whether it's fighting these fires or preparing for these sorts of seasons and i remember seeing maybe one or two reports um with the indigenous community saying you know uh we sort of got a handle on this stuff and we've been doing it for an awfully long time and it and it seems that their their practices have sort of fallen by the wayside as government agencies have have taken over the management of uh of forestry and forest fires is this always a good thing can we learn something from the indigenous community when it comes to these wildfires and certainly controlled burning uh in order to prevent them from growing to the size that they have let's bring in amy christensen fire research scientist canadian forest services indigenous wild uh wildfire stewardship and improving evacuations is with us now amy thanks for the time i hope you're well hi there thank you yeah i'm fine uh, it seems we're hearing a little bit more about this now in the sense that we're willing to listen to what the Indigenous community may have to say about this. Uh, what are your thoughts on on what we can learn from the Indigenous community? Yeah, well, you know, Indigenous communities in Canada have really used fire on the, the landscape, like my own family. I'm from the Métis Nation, and we used fire um, to achieve cultural objectives. And um, one of the really... Uh, nice side benefits of doing those kind of low risk um, burns was that it, it re- really reduced the, um, the the vegetation or the fuel that's available to burn in, in a fire. And so um, it really created what we call like a mosaic on the landscape. So where you kind of have patches that are less likely or less flammable than other patches. So you don't really get those big intense fires on the landscape that we're seeing right now. And I think, you know, what we've seen in um, in uh, Australia and the U.S. where they've actually had really big, devastating fires, fatalities, is that people really start looking for other ways um, that we can look at fire um, because it just starts to get overwhelming. You talked about the cultural practice of this within the Indigenous community. How much of this is cultural and a spiritual practice? How much of it is about forest management? Well, you know, I think for Indigenous people, they're connected, um, in a, you know, so we, um, especially in northwestern Ontario, they're like the nations have such a long history of using fire on the landscape. So, 
you know, fire is used in ceremonial purposes and other things, but it's really also used to basically make the, the landscape so that they were able to live on it in a good way. So, you know, by using fire, you can um, bring moose to an area, you can improve trapping, you can improve berry production, improve medicinal plant growth. So really, there's a lot of reasons why people burn. And, you know, it varies from nation to nation. Even neighboring nations might use fire in a different way. But like I said, the, the cultural objective of the fire is, you know, important, but one thing. But the, the really important thing is that it produces those mosaics on the landscape. Uh, I find this absolutely fascinating, Amy, and this is exactly where I was uh, hoping to, th- that you would go, and, and this was the information that I had heard uh, just even a few weeks ago, uh, you know, going back several <laughs> decades, century ago, centuries, mm-hmm. that, that, th- that the indigenous communities would burn forested areas in order to clean them out, then vegetation meadow and such would form and as you mentioned that would actually draw animals into trap mm-hmm. yeah it's really neat like especially in north um in northern alberta where i'm from uh one of the practices that was really documented was actually by a researcher named henry lewis who went and worked with the Dene and woodlands creek communities there and what he actually looked at was how they were burning in meadows and how it extended the growing season because basically mm-hmm. if they lit these early spring fires in meadows, it would help to um, get the frost out of the ground so you'd get earlier green grass growth, which, you know, was great for, like I said, buried medicinal plants and then also for animals to come to the area. Uh, at, at what point did did this change? At what point did uh, uh, the process sort of be taken over by government? What do they do differently? Sure. So, I mean, the, what we call it now, you know, is fire suppression. Um, so where we're trying to extinguish basically all fires that happen on the landscape. And that basically came with colonization um, of, of North America. So when the first kind of settlers came, even in 1610, that was the first public fire suppression campaign in uh, Canada and Newfoundland. And it slowly followed settlers as they moved west. So, you know, for them, they were kind of bringing European styles of forest management with them and a lot more nervous about fire and also wanting to protect timber, which, you know, they felt was in danger from these big fires. But the important thing about about cultural burning is that, you know, it's smaller, low-risk fires, and it's done really frequently. So you don't get these big, intense events, you know, that burn so much and can cause so much devastation. So I think, um, you know, it follows settlers. So, I mean, even I think communities in northern Alberta were burning um, into the, you know, um, 1950 about um, still burning on the landscape because it was harder to patrol. And I'm sure in northern Ontario, it was very similar. Um, but then what happened was lots of Indigenous people actually were either forced or, or went into firefighting um, as careers. So they kind of went from being hmm. fire burners to being firefighters on the landscape. Is the attitude changing now? I mean, this all sounds good, Amy, but is anybody listening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think people are listening. We have really good examples in Australia and California about how this can be done in a good way. Um, We're not seeing yet here um, in the nations that I'm working with, like any sort of funding um, commitment. And there's still a lot of barriers in the way to getting fire on the ground, which is really frustrating for a lot of communities. 
Um, and I think like um, what we've seen is that people are really interested in kind of this romantic idea of Indigenous burning, but they don't think that it's applicable to today, um, which I would argue that like, you know, Indigenous nations still have this knowledge. Many are still burning and Indigenous um, knowledge, too, is highly adaptable and, you know, develops over time. It's not a static thing from the past. Um, and yeah, so the nations that I've been working with across Canada, you know, are excited to kind of get this going and it can't happen, I think, fast enough for many of them. Uh, it seems there's been a lot of things we've started to listen to the Indigenous community about lately. Uh, maybe that has inspired uh, this as well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. How much of an impact can something like this have? I mean, uh, you know, when we're seeing towns being wiped off the mat, uh, map, you know, are we naive to think it can make that kind of an impact to save those towns? Is this a slow, long-term thing? What kind of impact can these sort of practices have? Yeah, well, I think it's important to note, you know, that we can't fireproof towns. Like there's, you know, events that do happen that are just so extreme. And especially right now, the really um, kind of unknown thing is climate change, right? That it's, you know, in in the the Lytton Valley there, when you're having 50 degrees Celsius days for, you know, five days on, on in a row, that's, you know, very extreme and volatile fire conditions. But I think that um, for, like I was saying, that the big thing with Indigenous fire is kind of producing more of a healthy landscape with all sorts of varying different stages in the ecosystem. So, you know, we call that like early succession forest, late succession forest, meadows, all sorts of, of you know, different kinds of, um, of environments so that when a fire comes through, it's not just like, you know, these highly intense, like, um, crazy fire behavior things that that we're seeing now in BC that are very hard to suppress. For example, when you have a meadow or some kind of other fuel management or something that's been done on the landscape, firefighters can often go in there and um, basically fight the fire. You know, it gives them an opportunity to be able to bring a fire under control. But if we don't have those areas, you know, it's really hard for firefighters when we're seeing some of this extreme fire behavior. What happens to the forest after it burns? Why, uh, why in some cases, is that beneficial? Uh, what's left? What happens after? Yes, you know, uh, before, like, um, before uh, European settlement of North America, we had, like, you know, the indigenous burns, but then we also had lightning-caused fires. But those fires wouldn't get as big or as intense. So they were more of like a, well, we say like cleansing of the landscape or something where they would go through and burn and they would display like more um, uh, intense uh, fire behavior. But it, it wasn't like as extreme as what we're seeing now. And the indigenous burns were, you know, relatively low risk, happening frequently, very low intensity. So what happens there is you're not disturbing like the soil or kind of the roots of many of the plants. Um, but like some of my colleagues right now are researching and looking at the impact of these huge fires up in the Boreal and actually finding that they're burning so hot and so intense that they're literally burning the soil, which is going to make regeneration of the forest very difficult. So, you know, it's really important that we get in there and kind of try to mitigate some of these really big fire events. 
Yeah, we often hear that within these fires, they're creating their own weather system, their own. Uh, it's just feeding off itself. It's 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 creating its own um, again, as, as if it was a front or some sort of weather system. Yeah, they call them pyrocumulonimbus clouds um, that form basically from from the the smoke column and the, the heat, fire. Yeah. And what it does is basically generates lightning and um, in front of the fire, and that. Obviously, if it's, you know, dry and bad conditions can spark other um, big events. And so with the um, Sparks Lake wildfire in B.C. and others, you know, we were seeing giant, giant um, pyro, cumulonimbus clouds that were starting all sorts of other fires. And um, we see that in California, too. And I think it's um, a relatively kind of newer phenomenon. I think the researchers are really trying to document how it happens um, and what we can do about it. There isn't a quick solution to this, is there, Amy, or is there? Well, you know, I'm a bit biased. (laughs) Indigenous cultural burning. You know, I think if we start to really empower Indigenous people to be leaders in fire and bring cultural burning back to their territories, you know, that's one thing to help reduce the risk. There's also, you know, the Fire Smart Canada program that we have, and that can give residents and communities um, kind of some step-by-step recommendations for things that they can do either on their properties and their neighborhoods or in their communities as well to to reduce their risk. So some of those are a bit, you know, more extreme and expensive, like replacing a roof or siding, but others are really simple things, you know, like mowing or watering your lawn or cleaning out your eaves troughs because most of the, the, um, the fire events that we've seen that burn homes or burn communities, it's actually not from a fire front, you know, the, the flames hitting the community. It's actually from embers landing on roofs yeah. or in yards and starting fires. Uh, is there any reason not to move forward within, with bringing the Indigenous community into this? You know, I mean, again, lots of talk. Uh, will this be permitted? Do you think, uh, you know, we will look more into this? Um, you know, the nations that I'm working with, I think that there's been a lot of interest from agencies. Our research kind of shows that there's still a lot of power <laughs> difficulties, you know, where people don't really mm-hmm. want to relinquish power. And I think some of that just comes from a lack of understanding of even what a cultural burn is and, and how it's done. So, you know, I think there's that. I think there is um, also a fear, you know, of of these kind of controlled or prescribed burns becoming out of control. There's hesitancy, ironically, around smoke from um, prescribed fire or cultural burns. So, you know, people don't want to see smoke in the air, even though, you know, we're seeing smoke kind of now for months in the summer. So they always say, you know, like we're going to have smoke um, in Canada. You just kind of have to, you were able though to choose when and how much smoke. Um, So, yeah, I think that's, some of the issues, I mean, it's really complex, I think. And um, with yeah. climate change, that just is complicating things a lot as well. But I know the communities that I'm working with, um, and I've heard from a bunch in Ontario, too, that really want to be able to um, take kind of fire management and forest management back on their territories. Uh, do you think this will get worse before it gets better? Again, it, it doesn't seem like there is uh, a, a quick fix, especially when we're seeing the weather that we are. Yeah, well, my colleague Sandy Ernie um, and some of her um, colleagues, they did a study recently on 
expire return intervals. So basically it looks at, you know, under a climate change scenario, how likely is it that communities will be kind of repeatedly impacted by wildfires? And what they found is that there, you know, in the next 50 years, there's going to be a substantial increase in community impacts because the, the fire return interval is going to increase. But also it'll even be higher for First Nations uh, reserves. So it's um, definitely like what we're seeing with the climate projections is that that things are predicted to get, um, you know, to basically for people to experience fire more, unfortunately. Amy Christensen has been with us, fire research scientist, Canadian Forest Services, Indigenous Wildfire Stewardship and Improving Evacuations, talking about the wildfires burning across Canada, pretty much from uh, B.C. all the way through Ontario, northwestern Ontario, and how the Indigenous communities can help us when it comes to burning practices, uh, specifically around Indigenous cultural burns and such. Amy, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. It is 2.25. News coming up at the bottom of the hour. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.